Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mohscollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for a conversation in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Ravi Chakshi from uh, Rutgers University. Uh, Ravi is the Chief of Surgical Oncology at Rutgers Cancer Institute and an Associate Professor of Surgery. Ravi, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to be discussing the article that you published in the Journal of Surgical Research on the cost-effectiveness of sentinel lymph node biopsy for head and neck uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And while we talk a lot about sentinel lymph node biopsy in melanoma, and we're starting to have that conversation in squamous cell carcinoma, we really don't have much data as it relates to the cost effectiveness of these procedures. So walk me through what prompted your study. So there has been quite a bit of literature out there. You know, a lot of it has been anecdotal, but some of it has been data-driven. Uh, that's indicated that there is a uh, benefit for utilization of sentinel lymph node biopsy in patients who have invasive squamous cell carcinoma and uh, in certain sizes of invasive squamous cell carcinoma. So in our practice here, while reviewing all of these papers, we started to ask ourselves the question that really these are not tumors that typically metastasize the lymph node very early. So do we get the same bang for our buck when we take a look at squamous cell carcinoma versus melanoma? And that's really where the uh, question started from. Got it. And before we start diving into the, the details of your design and how one goes about such a cost-effectiveness study, what was the main thing that you found? We have to assume not everybody in our, our listenership is familiar with this study, but your ears may have been ringing about three months ago when we talked about your paper at length at our uh, American College of Mohs Surgery annual meeting. So tell us the main findings just for the general audience listening. So the main findings of this study was that really we don't see a lot of metastatic disease from squamous cell, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma of the, of the head and neck that, that go to lymph nodes. So therefore, the addition of a sentinel lymph node biopsy overall is not very effective. And on top of that, in identifying additional disease, and, I, and in addition to that, it doesn't help us from a cost standpoint. So it actually increases the cost for not a lot of, for not a lot of uh, uh, survival benefit. And I think that's one of the interesting things. I mean, ultimately here, we're talking about value-based care, which is more and more becoming a theme to our, our care. And it's easy to have cost-effective medicine when you have one intervention that works as well as another, but costs half as much. You know, very easy. Everybody will agree that we'll go with the opportunity or the treatment that costs half as much. But it gets much more difficult and controversial than 
when you have an intervention that may work slightly better but costs a great deal more, or you have an intervention that upfront costs more and only in the long run may actually incur predictable cost savings. So how did you go about designing the study, realizing that you probably don't have a huge cohort of, of personal patients with squamous cell carcinoma with lymph node metastases? Yeah, so, you know, really, uh, this all kind of started a few years ago when I actually had several patients who had very uh, invasive squamous cell carcinomas that were very large in size. We had done a couple sentinel lymph node biopsies for those patients, and they did not yield the information that we had hoped to get out of them. And we wound up having overall some poorer outcomes for those patients who had very bad disease. So the question became is how can we set up a decision tree for the analysis to figure out whether sentinel lymph node biopsy would help in these kind of patients. So we kind of sat down and took a look at overall the patients that have squamous cell carcinoma, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. Now, there is not a lot of data that exists in the literature for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma of all the areas of the body. So we had to really do a very extensive literature search to find out where a majority of the information lied. And that's why we focus this more on head and neck cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. That being said, I think a lot of the findings would translate over. However, we obviously don't have the data to support that. While setting that up, we then decided to figure out from that standpoint whether or not when we did a wide local excision, whether the sentinel lymph node biopsies or not doing a sentinel lymph node biopsies for different stages, uh, T1, T2, or T3, would change the overall QAL-wise or would actually take a look and uh, change our overall cost per patient, which is really the most important thing we were looking at, and to see whether or not it made sense. My particular institution where I practice at is a, um, had historically been a, a state-run institute. A lot of these resources related to um, finding out you know, whether the cost analysis of things were better or worse did not exist. We have a probably we are the provider of the largest amount of uncompensated care in the state of New Jersey. So this is where kind of all these ideas came together to find out, are we doing things on patients that don't make a lot of sense? And really, should we be more careful about the way we're spending our money to be able to do this? And I think it's incredibly timely. And you really chose a, a very um, probably high yield question to answer, albeit one where the data is really um, hard to accumulate. Because it plays such a big role in our understanding of your paper and your conclusions, let's talk about how a decision tree model works and what a QALY or quality unit is and what we mean by incremental cost effectiveness ratios. Because I think you have to understand those three concepts to really be able to understand anything in the public health cost effectiveness literature. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, really we use the, the QALYs that we're referring to is the quality adjusted life years. And this is really uh, the representation of the effectiveness of each outcome. So when we're taking a look at this particular study and we're saying that, you know, for wide local excision of a squamous cell carcinoma and we're going to either sentinel lymph node biopsy and or not sentinel lymph node biopsy and evaluating each of those, we can really take a look at the QALYs and uh, see really how we can do our declining exponential, ex exponential approximation of life expectancy, which is the deal. And this kind of tells us really the 
you know, essentially using data that exists already, disease-specific death rate, disease and treatment morbidity, as well as life expectancy. Got it. And, and that's kind of where we got that idea from. And, I th and it seems to be a, a sort of persistent theme throughout this branch of our literature. And so from my reading, one QALY is basically one year in perfect health. And then everything that detracts from that becomes a decimal. And so a 0 0.5 QALY may be then one year spent with some morbidity to that year of life. Is that a fair understanding of how the QALY works for just a single year? Yes. Okay. And then with the incremental cost effectiveness ratio, we're ultimately looking at the differences in cost between two procedures or between doing a procedure and not doing a procedure over the difference in benefit or effect of that procedure. Is that, again, am I, am I getting the terminology right here? No, precisely. Okay. Precisely. Got it. So then using these two metrics, you have to have a, I guess you have to have a baseline sort of stereotypical patient to whom theoretically this uh, series of decision tree events occurs. And it sounds like in your paper, that was the sort of database 70-year-old white male who developed squamous cell carcinoma, which is our most common individual to get this. Is that correct? That's correct. And then based on that, you say, if this individual at age 70 has, say, 14 or 15 QLLY left, how much does each one of these decisions influence the findings? Absolutely, yep. Got it. And so, so are there any particular areas of your decision tree that you found most, most interesting or want to highlight for our listeners? I mean, really, as a whole, I think our overall um, our overall results were were really you know the most interesting part of this whole paper. I, I don't know that there was there's some data related to how T two lesions showed up, but I think that's just it may have just been what's related into the present in the data. But really, you know, the most important thing for us was actually not performing a sentinel lymph node biopsy, resulted in twelve point two six QALYs and a cost of about. $3,712. But when you performed a sentinel lymph node biopsy in these patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, it resulted in a 0.59 decrease in QALYs and an increased cost of $1,379. And to me, really, you take a look at the ICER from that, it's negative 2,338. And that's really, it's, it's an amazing number for, for looking at this particular kind of a study. Got it. Now, when, um, when I read the study, I had two questions that came up. And the first question is one that you also posed, which is in contrast to melanoma, we don't really have data that says whether or not doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy is in any way therapeutic or whether it would just be a staging procedure. And whether or not patients get a therapeutic benefit from having that diseased lymph node removed and say their T2 or T3 squamous cell carcinoma, how much would that factor into the cost analysis? So let me see if I understand. So you're asking me if, if they did, if it was not therapeutic from a lymph node metastasis standpoint? I, I guess I'm a little bit confused. 
So in, in melanoma, we now have good data that suggests that while a sentinel lymph node biopsy helps us to stage patients mm -hmm. and maybe get them to the appropriate um, adjuvant therapy, it does not in and of itself improve survival as a treatment. Yes. Similar to how a lymph node dissection doesn't do this either. We don't have that data in squamous cell carcinoma. So in this analysis that you've performed, is it based on also assuming that the sentinel lymph node biopsy will give patients some sort of survival benefit or only as a staging tool, which would then allow patients to have a completion lymph adenectomy, radiation therapy, et cetera? So really as a staging tool to, to, to find out whether they would need a completion lymphadenectomy and any adjuvant therapy that exists. We know that for metastatic squamous cell carcinoma that our, our chemotherapeutic options are, are not the best. Um, that's, that's to say it mildly. Um, and so because of that, we wanted to make sure that if we took a look at these patients, that if we did have positive sentinel lymph nodes, it would lead to their next area, which is basically disease control. We don't have the information like we do uh, for melanoma right now, uh, which really, really helps us to uh, use it more of a staging tool and then uh, drive our systemic therapy for the patients. One of the interesting things is that you base your study uh, very appropriately on the various stages of the disease. And we have some data that suggests that even in the eighth edition of the AJCC, we're not getting the best staging system to truly predict outcomes. And one of the uh, things I enjoyed most about your paper was in the last few paragraphs, you talk about should one maybe instead of doing the project designed around T-stage, really design the decision points around the presence or absence of, of high-risk features, depth of the tumor, perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion. Have you given that more thought or can you talk about how you think that would alter the modeling? Yes. I mean, we, we've spent quite a bit of time on a lot of our squamous cell carcinoma patients going back to pathology and trying to devise a better way to see which are the most high-risk features that may benefit it the most. Again, this has been a study that's been really, it's been kind of ongoing for about seven, seven or eight years with the first patient who I resected with squamous cell carcinoma and the first patient who I had become widely metastatic from squamous cell carcinoma. So we went back to pathology. We reviewed a lot of the features, the size of the lesions, uh, how they looked under the microscope, you know, whether they had very poorly differentiated ulcerative kind of features to it, and lymphovascular invasion, perineural invasion, all the other poor prognostic features to see whether or not the, the unfortunate part is that we do not have a good national database to take a look at all these lesions and any particular institute unless they have a very very high volume of squamous cell carcinoma and especially very i guess advanced disease it's hard to get these numbers all together so we're doing it in, in our institution um, on a smaller scale but with the hope that we can share this data in the future to see which are truly high risk because because sometimes you know our our, our staging criteria don't meet with the real needs of what the tumor is really doing. And, and I think that's an excellent point that you brought up there. And while certainly we've seen an improvement from the seventh edition of the AJCC to the Brigham and Women's staging system and now our, our eighth edition, uh, it's still only one part of that conversation we have in our patients, right? There's, there's features to 
the scenario that really aren't accounted for in the staging system because it's tumor specific. So is your patient immunosuppressed? What is the age of your patient? So, so when you encounter patients in your practice now with, with advanced squamous cell carcinoma, what's the conversation that you have with them? How do you discuss the disease? How do you discuss maybe even cost effectiveness with your patients? So, I mean, I really do sit down and take every single patient of mine as an individual and try to look at them and to see what their underlying issues might be. I, I think one of the things you mentioned, which is, which, is, which is great, and that's probably a point I should have brought up as well, you know, whether they are immunosuppressed, whether they have other health care issues, well, you know, what their, what their underlying general health is prior to engaging these operations. I, I can give you an example because we are a safety net hospital for the state of New Jersey. Um, we see probably some of the most advanced squamous cells that, um, th that exist. I mean, squamous cells are sometimes 20, 30 centimeters in size. And a lot of these patients, when they come in, they have to be evaluated to figure out, you know, do you have underlying conditions that have made this thing so badly? What kind of an area do you live at that this could have possibly occurred? Not all the patients we see are like that. Some of them are very early squamous cell cancers. Understanding, you know, HIV status and understanding all the underlying things associated with it. Then once we decide what we're going to do, if they have an invasive squamous cell carcinoma, that seems to be very big. How do we evaluate them ahead of time? And this has been kind of the, the biggest question in our, in our particular practice because we do know that the data has not been completely teased out for the utilization of sentinel lymph node biopsies for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. So how do we determine who will benefit from this the most? Is it the patient who has, you know, a 10-centimeter squamous cell carcinoma with the lower extremity who, who winds up having inguinal lymphadenopathy? Or is it, or is it a patient who, who has a 5-centimeter squamous cell carcinoma that has poor, pro, that has poor features um, who does not but has had some, uh, some symptomatology? And these are all the things we kind of go through from, from beginning to end. In my practice, after we've published this paper and after we've really looked at it very carefully, I have added something with high-risk patients, I mean, high-risk patients in very advanced tumors to getting PET scans ahead of time on these patients to identify what, ex what exactly is going on. If I find out patients have suspected disease in other areas, then I will consider adding a sentinel lymph node biopsy for confirmation so we don't have to do a big, big operation on them to be able to identify those nodes. However, on patients who don't, you know, we kind of go straight to just doing the wide local excision, and they get very close surveillance by me and their dermatologist. Every patient I see with squamous cell carcinoma is seen at least twice a year by me and their, and their, and their primary dermatologist, so we can make sure that we're all kind of on the same page for their management. And I think it's been actually very successful. Well, you just mentioned an interesting thing, and actually one of the questions that I was wondering about as well. You, you know, basically, um, we're, we're sort of at the decision tree of you have somebody who has no palpable lymphadenopathy, assuming that every patient with a high-risk squamous cell carcinoma has a uh, clinical node exam. Before we get to the decision tree of sentinel lymph node biopsy, yes, no, tell me more about that utility of imaging and how if you had been doing imaging in your study... Do you think you would have been able to tease out a cohort that was more likely to benefit from sentinel lymph node biopsy? You know, it's, it's very difficult because a, a lot of the patients have such advanced diseases uh, with their squamous cells or they've been 
uh, almost a little bit negligent to their to their overall disease. Whenever there's a question, you know, the imaging we've thought has helped us to delineate which people are more likely to have metastatic disease. The problem with any of these long-standing squamous cell car- cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas is that many times it's been there for many years. There's a lot of irritation. There's a lot of areas. These patients have chronically scratched these lesions. They've scabbed over. They've scratched them again over years and years and years, and then ultimately wind up coming in for an excision of this. And what we see as the avid areas on PET scan, for example, even with large tumors, many times are all just reaction from for, you know, from irritation, chronic irritation of that area. So we have not truly seen a, a benefit for doing imaging ahead of time, but it's something that, that we've incorporated uh, while trying to work with our, our medical oncology colleagues to figure out a better way to treat this. So I don't know exactly how this would change our, our decision tree. So Ravi, I want to get a little bit more detail from you. You know, we talked about how decision tree cost analyses work, but you having an MPH, give us some of the details of, of where the data comes from, what the validity of such a decision-making is to, to make the listeners comfortable basing their clinical decision-making on these sort of things. Sure. So, you know, cost-effectiveness uh, studies are really, they're a, a labor of love for figuring out how the methodology can be as correctly organized as possible. So, uh, we really started out with the decision tree methodology. We kind of sat down, we made a, de- a decision tree which visually maps out uh, every clinical scenario and its different possible outcomes of interest. After that, we sat down and we added in probabilities and outcome values to each area of the tree. So each branch of the tree got its own probability and outcomes value, which allowed us to quantitatively evaluate the scenario from both a cost standpoint and an effectiveness standpoint. And that's where we used our Medicare reimbursement for cost. And from an effectiveness standpoint, we used our QAL-wise. We also took a look at everything and said, how do we read this model? Because these models can be very confusing. There's a lot of different decision-making, especially with the branches of the trees. And we looked at the model, reading it really from left to right, with the first area of the model uh, really being the decision node. And it, re- it represents exactly what we're comparing. So in this particular study, we looked at performing sentinel lymph node biopsy versus not performing a sentinel lymph node biopsy in squamous cell carcinoma of the, of, of, excuse me, of head and neck cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And that helped us to move things along. Associated with each of those nodes or each of those boxes is a final cost and effectiveness value. So we have a, an actual number associated with it in dollars as well as our QAL-wise from an effectiveness standpoint. And that really results from the accumulation of all the different branch points. As we move through it, we make sure that we check everything by doing sensitivity analysis. Uh, We make sure that we go through one-way, two-way, and probabilistic sensitivity analysis. So if we change one variable, we have an answer for it. If we change two variables or or two-way sensitivity analysis, we can actually change two variables simultaneously. And the probabilistic um, sensitivity analysis is, is important because it helps us to really run simulations, uh, choosing a value kind of randomly, but based on the, value, the variable's distribution. Um, and this is done for the variables within the tree. And all of that information together really helps us to give us a, a good calculation of our cost effectiveness with every single simulation 
and also gives us a final look at exactly what percentage of time a decision arm is favored. And I think that may help to clarify for our listeners. And so then um, I was really intrigued by the, by the stimulations because I think one of your figures says first 2,000 out of, I don't know, 100,000 simulations or, or something like that. So what are the different things that happen during the simulation? Is it plugging potential patient scenarios into this decision tree and seeing what the outcome would be or what is specifically being simulated? That's exactly what it is. As as we hit each of the branch points, we look at the different variations. We look at T1 tumors, T2 tumors, T3 tumors. We look at the potential for nodal metastasis. Um, and all these things are plugged into the simulations to give us a better look of the overall picture of our QALY, so our effectiveness, as well as the costs that are associated with it. Okay. No, I think that's a really helpful point of, of clarification because, as you said, um, having an MPH, this is sort of a, a labor of love to make the methodology as, as applicable uh, to our real-life patients as possible. So you, um, you have a master's in public health. I do. And was that something you um, worked on during medical school, or was that a completely separate decision before or after you started that part of your training? So it's really interesting, you know, a majority of people, you know, either get their MPH prior to medical school or, uh, you know, getting admittance into medical school or even during their medical school training nowadays. I actually did this as a faculty member after I had finished, you know, my residency, my, my dual fellowship training. And as soon as I came on to faculty, my first position at, uh, at Rutgers. And um, the importance of understanding biostatistics, the importance of making good methodology in your research, um, it, it, it cannot be undervalued. To me, you know, I, I had been out there, I'd been writing papers, I'd been doing uh, clinical outcomes research, and I never felt like I truly understood the methodology of, of why I was doing certain things, and nor did I really understand all the nuances of the, of the, of the biostats. So I actually wound up spending... I guess it's a little bit embarrassing, but uh, it took me almost about six years to do my my MPH. I was obviously a full-time faculty member, so uh, that's a pretty busy job in itself. But I made sure that I went through you know each of the steps of the training. Uh, many times I had to take you know one course you know per semester just to be able to continue on. But I certainly uh, learned quite a bit from it. I collaborated with our with our faculty um, here uh, on certain projects. And I also continue to actually work and I've been invited to give uh, lectures to the actual uh, School of Public Health students on, on the utilization of your MPH to, to improve your research. And to me, it's really changed the whole way I look at, at, at clinical questions. I don't have a basic science laboratory, so this is the way I ask a lot of questions. And my focus on cost is really because I think in medicine, and I think a lot of uh, other physicians would agree with me, it's really quite a, a black box. We don't know what the cost of certain things are. The therapies we're, we're instituting, we don't really have a good understanding of what the differences in the therapies that exist out there are. And to me, I thought that these are very important things to help bring, to the, bring light to, especially when we're in this, uh, in this kind of environment of, uh, of increasing productivity for physicians, as well as compensation issues and you know, I guess, ballooning healthcare costs. Yeah, and I mean, what a great uh, career development step for you and now teaching it back to those who, 
who taught you in some ways. Now, let's pick your brain from, from an MPH standpoint and realizing that oncology care is probably one of the most expensive things in healthcare and also realizing that non-melanoma skin cancer, while not that expensive per individual episode as an overall public health burden, is, is quite expensive. So going forward, is it our role to increase the public's awareness of the tension or dichotomy between what is medically possible and what is affordable or reasonable? Where do you see that conversation going forward? Well, I think actually, you know, the, the actual public wants to know themselves. We know one of the main causes of individual bankruptcy in the United States is uh, medical debt. And this is a big problem. I mean, patients want to know this information. And as, as physicians, we should be able to provide them with what we know about it. Many times we're not educated on, on it ourselves. I, I do think that making sure that we're educated to be able to offer certain options on different therapies of care is is a very important thing. You know, if we if we identify, you know, therapies that cost 10 or 15 times what another therapy would but has the same effectiveness, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to offer a different therapy that costs a lot more money to the system. I do think that going forward, you know, we do have to think in a more financially responsible way all of us do. And 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 the way that should work in oncology, and obviously it's very complicated with the drug development and a lot of the new things that are coming out, but there should be considerations on, on what the cost is and what the effectiveness of the therapy is. So we're not just spending a lot of money on very little benefit, or sometimes as we found out in this particular in this particular paper, you know, that we authored, no benefit to the patient. Right. I think that's such a fundamental question within medicine where if, if you review the majority of, of guidelines, uh, especially from larger organizations like the NCCN guidelines, you know, to what degree should there be comments on cost effectiveness, realizing that none of us want to withhold valuable or life-saving treatment from our patients, but exactly as you alluded to, having treatments that potentially add minimal more quality or quantity of life at a very expensive Cost. So, as an MPH, are are you hoping for a a greater emphasis on that in in any sort of formal governing bodies and and guidelines? Well, I think you know I I'm hoping for that in the future. And in a perfect world, we would have we would be able to take a look at what our therapies are and see what the costs are. Uh, we know all patients are treated. Uh, all patients uh, are, are individuals, and they have uh, different responses to different therapies. And we have to always keep that in mind that all all medicine should be patient-directed. It shouldn't be all algorithm-directed. That being said, I think understanding what the costs are and, and incorporating them, if not as a major part of our predictor of what the treatment should be, at least mentioning them in the guidelines that are saying that, they, that these may be equivocal from a financial standpoint and make that a consideration is important. And I, and I can tell you that based, you know, I work at a uh, at a safety net hospital um, in Newark, New Jersey. And, you know, we see patients from all different kinds of walks of life, uh, people that, that are extremely wealthy, people that are unfortunately, you know, uh, not as wealthy and have many other medical problems and social issues. And by, by addressing this and trying to level the playing field for what makes sense from a cost standpoint, I think we allow ourselves better patient care 
and also a little bit more responsible patient care. I, I think that's a really great conclusion to our conversation here. Uh, as we look at the cost effectiveness of, of sentinel lymph node biopsies in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, it's really truly about the best patient care and the most responsible patient care. And so, Ravi, before we conclude, any other points that you want to share with our uh, dermatology audience regarding your, your research, where you see this going forward, or have we hit all the high points? I, I think we've certainly hit all the high points. I, I would just you know, ask all of, all, of, uh, all of our colleagues to just consider whenever new therapies arise, you know, not only what the effectiveness is um, from a standpoint of the cost, but really what kind, of, what kind of benefit are we really offering our patients. And when we can consider that and look at it from a very um, practical standpoint, I think a lot of the decisions we make uh, will be really vested in more data than just assumptions of, of, of what, what, what different techniques are out there. Wonderful. Well, Ravi, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. The article that was discussed today will be included in the Mose College Reference Library. And because this article had uh, a little bit of attention at our last annual meeting, I encourage all of our listeners to follow up with, with me um, through, through questions or comments. We love to hear feedback on the show and the episodes in particular. Thank you all, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations with Mose Surgery. <laughs>